Please grab a seat. Uh, the reading this morning is from, it's the whole chapter, the third chapter of Habakkuk. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigianoth. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day, in our time make them known, in wrath remember mercy. God came from Timan, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Salah. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. I saw the tents of Kushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. Salah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. Salah. With his own spear, you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. I heard, and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. For the director of music on my stringed instruments. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, a very good morning to you. Uh, It's great to be with you. Let's ask the Lord's blessing as we come to this uh, passage of Scripture. Father, thank you that you are the God who speaks. And so we pray through these words written some 2,600 years ago, we ask by your Spirit, speak to each one of us. We long that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would see deep things in your word and know your love for us more dearly. For Jesus' sake. Amen. If the things that mattered most to you were taken from you, how would you react? An economic crunch comes and you find yourself made redundant from your dream job. A fire or an earthquake or a thief strikes and your prized possessions are snatched away. 
Sickness takes a loved one. How do you respond? I'm aware that for some this morning, those are not hypothetical situations. That is the reality that you live in day by day. How do you respond? I guess there are many possible reactions, aren't there? Anger, seeking revenge, being overwhelmed, being bewildered, falling into depression. And all of these are unnatural. But the amazing truth from Habakkuk this morning is that in the midst of extreme brokenness, in the midst of tragedy, we can rejoice. We can rejoice. Now notice I said can. This is not a guilt trip. This is not a a try and be happy and and force up a smile. It's certainly not a kind of quick fix. Hear this today and you'll go home happy. But it is a promise that if we know God like Habakkuk knows him, then we can rejoice. Over the past two weeks, we've seen this dialogue, haven't we, between Habakkuk and God. In chapter one, it begins, how long, O Lord, till you judge evil? Not long, God says, I'm raising up the Babylonians. But of course, the cure is worse than the disease. And as the Babylonians come, these wicked, this violent nation comes, Habakkuk cries out, how can you, the holy and pure and good God, uh, look on at this evil and injustice? And in chapter 2, we saw that uh, God gave Habakkuk this instruction to live by faith, trusting in God's promises, remembering the day when God will bring righteousness throughout all the earth. And what a contrast we see here at the end of chapter 3 compared to the beginning of chapter 1. In chapter 1, Habakkuk was down in the dumps. By the end, he is resolving to rejoice. Look at verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Saviour. Well, how did the change happen? Notice it's not because his outward circumstances have changed. We often think like this, don't we? When I get through the busy patch, it'll be okay. When, when things settle down at work, when, when the kids are a bit older. But it's not that his outward circumstances have changed. If anything, it's got worse. Before it was the evil of Israel. Now it's the marauding Babylonians he has to look at. What has changed is this journey he's been on with the Lord in these three chapters. He knows his God more deeply. Well, what we have in chapter 3 is Habakkuk's response to what God has said to him. And it comes, doesn't it, in the form of a prayer. Strictly speaking, 3 to 15, a kind of a praise of God, praise that he's a mighty warrior who comes for his people. And then before that, in in verse 2, he prays, that God would be who he is, do what he's done before. Well, having praised the Lord, Habakkuk then makes two resolutions. He resolves to live by faith in two different ways, and we'll look at those in a minute. But first, look at this prayer. And notice it's not a private prayer. It ends, doesn't it, uh, for the director of music on my stringed instruments. Very much like the Psalms, isn't it? And this is something that enters into Israel's songbook. It becomes part of the worship of God's people. And I take it they are, we are, to sing this song, to pray this prayer until the end of time. And it helps us to remember that Jesus will come again. 
helps us to refocus our mind on the Lord Jesus. And if I could summarize it, it's like this. Our God is the God who comes to win victory for his people. Our God is the God who comes to win victory for his people. Look at verse 3. God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. Now, we don't know where those places are. Probably they're in the south of Israel. And it looks like maybe uh, Habakkuk is remembering the Exodus journey. Certainly the Exodus is in view, isn't it, in verse um, 5, as there's that reference to plagues. And then verse 8 looks like a reference to the splitting of the Red Sea. But do you see the big point? God comes. God comes. God's not some kind of grand old man in the sky looking on from a distance with indifference at the plight of this world. No, he comes. And he will come again. And when he comes, do you see, he comes in glory. Look at verse 3. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Think about a glorious sunrise. Sunrises are almost some of the most breathtaking things in the created order, aren't they? When people see them, they, they gasp. They pull out their phones and take a selfie. But you see, God is even more brilliant glorious and when he comes people will see and marvel but not just marvel look at the middle of verse 4 rays flash from his hand where his power was hidden God is no spectator he comes with terrific power that he will use for the good of his people we're in verse 5 plague went before him pestilence followed his steps and do you remember the story of the exodus As God said through Moses to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh hardened his heart. And so effortlessly, God poured out those plagues, gnats and frogs and hail, until finally Pharaoh relented. And then verse 6, we have this picture of the created order trembling. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. We were in Japan as that tsunami struck. Magnitude 9 earthquake causing waves over 40 meters tall. I don't think anyone who's seen that footage of buildings and cars being washed out of its way can get rid of that image of terror. The raw power of the created order. Ten years on, from the earthquakes. I imagine many of you have similar scenes etched into your minds as uh, it approaches 10 years, scenes you'll never forget. And you see how Habakkuk takes those kind of scenes and he says how much more powerful is God? Not just roads or buildings trembling, but mountains crumbling. It's an awesome scene. And then verse 8 is, it, up until now, it's as if Habakkuk's been coming to, uh, sorry, God has been coming towards Habakkuk. And now in verse 8, he's before him. And Habakkuk speaks to him. And he says, was your anger with the rivers, O Lord? It's a bizarre question, isn't it? When you judged Egypt, were you angry with the creation? When you parted the Red Sea, were you angry with the sea? No, of course not. 
course not. Why did he come? You came, verse 13, to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. God's coming in judgment has a purpose. I don't know about you, but this imagery I find overwhelming. It's like some kind of awesome, epic battle in the Lord of the Rings. It's kind of an overload of sensory experience. And I think it is meant to overwhelm us, but not just for the sake of it, but to make the point, our great and awesome God is coming in power, coming with chariots, overturning rivers to save his people and their anointed leader. The way he makes us safe is by destroying our enemies. Look again at verse 13. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. And how did he achieve it? You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from from head to foot. And look at the middle of verse 14. At the moment the enemy thought they'd won, in a big final push when they stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who are in hiding, then, the beginning of verse 14, with his own spear, you pierced his head. Do you see the scene? The people are gloating in anticipation of their victory. And then God reverses it. With their own weapons, they are crushed. And we think of a number of times in the scriptures, can't we, where it looks like God's enemies will win. And then God flips it round. Think of Daniel in the lion's den. As the enemies think they've caught him and will throw him into the lion's den. Or think of Haman thinking he will uh, hang Mordecai on his 22 meter gallows. And it looks like God's people are defeated. And then God steps in. And in an ironic twist, the very weapon used against God's people ends up bringing the end of God's enemies. The greatest reversal, though, being the cross. As God's son comes, not as a mighty warrior, but as a humble human. And then the ultimate leader of the land of the wicked, the devil, thought he saw his chance to win. Thought that he could kill God's son. We read in Luke that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, the devil entered into Judas Iscariot. And Judas betrayed Jesus. And as Jesus is tried and sentenced, it looks, doesn't it, like utter failure. It looks like evil has won. And yet in that moment, the devil overplays his hand. As Jesus looks weakest, hanging on the cross, there he is, paying the penalty for our sins, rescuing us from the devil's clutches, taking death and out of it bringing life. The proof coming, of course, three days later as he rises from the grave. The proof that he's alive, that he will come again, not this time in humility, but as the glorious king, the glorious warrior that Habakkuk sees to punish and banish evil. Well, friends, we can look forward to the day when there will be no more evil. No more injustice, no more corrupt politicians, no more vindictive neighbors, no more abuse, no more pain, no more death, no more suffering, because God will come and banish it. This is our God, the one who comes. And this is what Habakkuk praises God for. But you see, he doesn't just praise him. Go back to the beginning of the prayer and see how he begins. Verse 2. 
Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. I take it that's all that he's seen of the Lord in these couple of chapters. And then he prays, renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. You see, he doesn't just remember, but he prays it. Lord, do again what you've done. Be the God who you are. I listened this week to an interview by uh, an interview with Tim Keller. Some of you know Tim Keller. He was a, a pastor in New York City for many years, written many books. Many of you will have read uh, or seen his books. And Tim Keller was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, I think at the beginning of last year. And he was talking in this interview about how, uh, he, was, how he was coping with uh, pancreatic cancer. And he, he said people expected him. He, he's the guy who's written books on suffering. People expected that he would just be fine. And the thing that he realized was in his head was all the, all the things he needed to know about God. And yet he needed to lay hold of that truth. He said, I needed to operationalize this truth. It didn't just happen. I had to put it into practice by faith. Well, in the same way, I take it that Habakkuk is, is operationalizing these truths that God has given him in this prayer and in these praises. Lord, I know who you are. Now, please, do it again. In wrath, remember mercy. And it's a challenge to us. Don't let these things of the future, don't let these things of God's character just be things in your head, but move yourself to awe as you meditate on them, as you pray them. Operationalize these truths. Lord, for the land of New Zealand, as it moves further and further away from the gospel heritage, in wrath, come and remember mercy. Lord, for my family member who has turned from you, make yourself known again. Lord, give victory to the one who is suffering. Give them comfort to the grieving relative. Renew your deeds in our day. Come, Lord, as you've promised to come. Well, Habakkuk remembers that God comes to win victory for his people. And that then leads him to these two resolutions. First, in the midst of tragedy, I'll wait patiently for the Lord to come. In the midst of tragedy, I will wait patiently for the Lord. Verse 16 and 17. Verse 16. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Just he's a quivering wreck, isn't he? Maybe he looks out and surveys the land trashed by the Babylonians. Maybe he's anticipating the Babylonians' return. We don't actually know, but he's physically sick, isn't he, at the, the situation in his country. And yet in the middle he says, I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. And you see what this isn't? It's not a detached passivity. It's not a kind of escape from reality. It's not a what will be, will be, she'll be all right kind of thing. It's a bold, active, patient waiting. And what has and will come on Jerusalem, the suffering at the hand of the Babylonians, is literally a kind of hell on earth. That's how the Bible takes this suffering and uses it. It's a foretaste of hell. And Habakkuk says, what will come is awful, and yet I will wait in the midst of it for the day of reversal. 
when judgment will come and will give way to the knowledge of the Lord in the way that it will cover the seas, cover the waters as the waters cover the seas. Well, friends, if Habakkuk can say that in the midst of hell on earth, he says it because our God is the God who comes to bring victory. Now, our struggles are different. But there are many struggles, aren't there? There are the struggles that are common to all human people living in a fallen land, sickness, death, suffering, loneliness, grief. But there are also struggles that we face uniquely because we follow Christ in a society that has turned from him. We're sneered at, we're mocked, we're opposed for standing with Jesus. And so what an encouragement to know. What an encouragement to endure suffering patiently, to know that Jesus will come and bring victory for his people. It enables us to suffer well, to overlook wrongs, to forgo bitternesses, to forgive our enemies. I thought of George Whitfield. George Whitfield was one of the great preachers of the 18th century. Uh, others you might know are, are John and Charles Wesley. And in his day, Whitfield um, began to find opposition and hostility, often from within the church. And some of Whitfield's friends said to him, if you don't, Mr. Whitfield, answer these charges, then others will write history, and your name will go down in the history books as mud. And actually, to a large extent, that's what happened. Uh, In his day, Whitfield was a much more significant man than Wesley, and yet Wesley's the one who's written about. But when people said that to Whitfield, he said this, I am content to wait until the day of judgment for the clearing up of my character. When I'm dead, I desire no epitaph but this. Here lies George Whitfield. What kind of man he was, the great day will discover. Isn't that remarkable? I don't need to spin things now. I don't need to get my way now because God will fight for me. And do you see what that isn't? It's not passivity. It's an active, patient waiting. It's an active, patient trusting the Lord and leaving things to him. In the midst of tragedy, I wait for the Lord to come. But then secondly, in the midst of a curse, I'll make the Lord my source of joy. Look at verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll be joyful in God, my Savior. A few years ago, I was due to preach on these verses and I mentioned that to somebody and they said, I love those verses. I used to have them on my wall on on a poster. And then this lady in her 60s got a little bit embarrassed and said, I had them on my wall at university, but university was just a kind of happy and easy time for me. And you see, that's not what Habakkuk is talking about. It's not a time of ease. It's a time of devastation. God said that when the people in the promised land turned from him, they would be cursed. And here we have the curse worked out. The loss of crops, the loss of all kinds of things. The loss of figs was a loss of delicacies. Maybe for us it's the loss of fine clothes, the loss of smart holidays, the loss of an iPhone. Yet I'll rejoice. Grapes are the the fruit of the vine, the the daily drink. Olives speak of the loss of oil for heating, oil for cooking. The food of the field is clearly the, the staples of today. People are hungry. 
They can't feed their kids yet. I will rejoice, says Habakkuk. Sheep provided wool and meat. Cattle weren't so much for food, but they're the way to plow up the land for the next year to get things ready for the next harvest. It's kind of like our savings being run down, having to put our home on the market to pay our debts. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. It's an extraordinary resolution, isn't it? And when we see the greatness of God, that he is far greater than the many blessings he pours out on us, we can rejoice. I may not have his blessings, but I have him. And in him, I have everything. Habakkuk says, verse 19, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go onto the heights. Now we don't have every blessing from God that we'd want. There are so many blessings we look at and we wish we had them. But day by day, our Heavenly Father gives us the strength, the grace to walk today and every day until he calls us home. Romans 8.32 says, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously, along with him graciously, give us all things? I'm sure I've told you this story before. But Johnny Erickson Tarder jumped into a lake as a teenager. And in that moment of miscalculation of the depth of the water, she uh, was paralyzed from the waist down. In an instant, every dream snatched from her. And she wrestles in her biography with doubt. How could God do this to me? And yet she was able to continue to rejoice in her Savior. Someone said, did you not pray for healing? And she said, I did. I prayed for healing, but God did a greater miracle. He kept me in a wheelchair and he put a smile on my face. Now she can say that because she knows that God is mighty. She knows that God will come. Somewhere else she says, when I get to heaven with my new body, the first thing I will do is fall down on my face in front of the Lord Jesus and worship him. And then I'll get up and I'll do cartwheels. Isn't that remarkable? And for her, the promises are real. They're not just dusty words in a book. She knows that this is the truth. And as Habakkuk walks through Jerusalem, smashed up by the Babylonians, the temple destroyed, it might well look like God has abandoned him and his people. Yet he makes a conscious decision. I will wait. I will rejoice. I'll live by faith, by the promises of God and not by sight. And I guess Johnny Erickson Tada made a similar resolution in the face of dashed dreams. I know that some of you have had to do the same thing, that you have to do that same resolution day by day. Well, as we finish, what's the application? It's not be joyful. Please, please don't mishear me. I am not saying go home and be joyful. And if you hear that, it will only bring you pain. But if we know God deeply like this, even in the midst of the world, we can rejoice through clenched teeth, through teary eyes. But in Christ, we're able to resist the frustration and bitterness. So the application is this. Do we know God like this? We know him like this maybe in our heads. 
But will we spend time making sure this is the way we know him in our hearts, in our daily lives? To use Tim Keller's phrase, will we operationalize this truth by faith and apply this to our lives? And see how Habakkuk got there. It's through a process of being honest with God, wrestling with God, asking his question. It is not quick. It was not easy. As we come to the table, maybe that some need to commit to doing business with him, to cry out to the Lord, to commit ourselves afresh to him, to ask him to reveal ourselves to us. And may God reassure us, help us to know that he will come. He will deliver And may God give us the grace to walk in the light of that truth. Let us pray together. The righteous will live by faith. Father, thank you for speaking to us the truth of your Son. And we pray that these words we have heard will by your Spirit sink deep into our hearts, that they would grasp us and master us that we might, in the midst of whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, whether it's prosperity or despair, that you would enable us to walk by faith and not by sight, to cling to Jesus and walk with him. For his glory's sake. Amen.